this podcast, including any related materials, such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. The podcast presenters' views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of their research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you careful about what you eat, mindful about exercise and getting the sleep that you need, but still struggling with your weight? I was too. I found a solution that helped me break out of the fat storage mode. Most of us are aware that for health and longevity, we need to pay attention to what we're eating. But few are taking into consideration the effects of our meal timing. The latest research and my own personal experience have taught me that we'd be wise to change that. Join me on this episode of The Practice to get the inside scoop on the latest research for intermittent fasting, also known as time-restricted eating, and the relationship to your metabolism and detoxification abilities. I'll reveal three examples of potentially life-changing ways to create cardiometabolic resilience. That is what has made all the difference for me, and it may provide hope for anyone who feels stuck with excess weight. Until age 45, I thought I had it made. I was careful about what I ate, how much I exercised. I got five to nine servings of fresh fruits and vegetables every day. I didn't drink too much. I got my 10,000 steps. But I was struggling with my weight and what I thought was the root cause, a problem with insulin resistance. I was stuck in fat storage mode. Then I discovered something incredibly powerful and potentially life-changing, a simple lifestyle medicine tool that reversed my issues with glucose disposal, helped me lose weight in a sustainable way, and allowed me to create cardiometabolic resilience. The main strategy is periodic fasting in general and time-restricted eating in particular. Today, I want to describe several periodic fasting regimens along with the best science supporting their use, and most importantly, how to teach your patients to do it so that they can conquer these same problems that I faced. Specifically, they can trigger the important molecular mechanisms of autophagy and hormesis, and as a downstream consequence, lose weight, prevent and reverse chronic disease, maybe even reprogram the beta cells of the pancreas extend health span, and similarly, create their own cardiometabolic resilience. Aging is complex, but we're learning that much of it is modifiable with lifestyle redesign, specifically the way that you eat, move, sleep, connect, and think. One of the most important ways 
to accelerate aging is to gain weight, to become overweight or obese. Currently, we have an epidemic in the United States with two-thirds of the population overweight or obese. Globally, in 2016, about 11% of men and 15% of women are obese, which is about 2 billion adults. Now, we all know this is not just a vanity problem, but that these folks develop both metabolic inflexibility and exacerbated immune responses. But why is tipping the scale so bad? What are the sequelae of obesity? Obesity robs you of not just lifespan, but health span. A body mass index greater than 35 reduces your life expectancy in men by eight years, and in women by six years, mostly due to the increased rates of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. Health span is reduced by 11 to 19 years, according to data collected at McGill University in Montreal and published in The Lancet. Higher body mass index is associated with changes in the structure and function of the brain, particularly the hippocampus and the frontal lobes. Obesity is associated with memory deficits in adults, according to research from the University of Cambridge. For most of us, modern life is an obesogenic environment that promotes weight gain at work, at home, even on vacation. We've all faced the challenges of diagnosing our patients with these really difficult clinical issues, prediabetes, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, breast cancer, dementia. They all desperately need lifestyle medicine, and it's the cornerstone of how we prevent and treat obesity. Yet diets fail for most of our patients because adherence is so lousy and long-term success is modest at best. Over the past few decades of clinical practice, I've thought long and hard about which diet is the right fit for the patient in front of me. And I've tried it all, personally and professionally. Caloric restriction, the Mediterranean diet, reduction of one macronutrient, at first fat, sometimes protein, and then over the years, carbohydrates, which may or may not be a good idea over the long term. I've tried all of the nutrigenomic diets, but in my opinion, what works best for the majority of patients is to restrict intake to an eight-hour window of high-quality, nutrient-dense foods and to combine that with an 18-hour overnight fast. It doesn't require cutting out a macronutrient. It appears to work very well for both men and women, and it even works whether you're plant-based or an omnivore. The best part is that time-restricted eating doesn't require thousands of dollars of testing or even that you buy a book. Time-restricted eating is free, yet extremely impactful. In fact, one recent consumer survey showed that intermittent fasting, which is the term that most consumers use, is now practiced by 16% of Americans. And I suspect that as more people learn about the benefits of metabolic rest, more will adopt time-restricted eating and other fasting protocols. Today, I wanna to share with you the most promising protocols and review what your patients can expect from them. It's not really new because time-restricted eating is what our ancestors practiced by necessity. 
It's the metabolic environment in which our DNA evolved. Don't you love it when something ancient becomes trendy? The latest flurry of research interest in time-restricted eating and other forms of fasting are based on the tenets of caloric restriction, which has been known to increase longevity since the 1930s. But time-restricted eating has evolved especially over the past 10 years to be a viable, scientifically proven, and as I've found in my own practice, readily adopted strategy that can truly help your patients improve their insulin signaling, burn fat, and achieve many other health-related goals. In short, time-restricted eating is one of the most evidence-based ways to recreate metabolic flexibility, which I'll describe in more detail in a moment. Before we get to metabolic flexibility, it's important to understand that intermittent fasting flips a metabolic switch from burning glucose to burning fatty acid-derived ketones. This is important to understand. The metabolic switch itself is the point of negative energy balance at which liver glycogen stores become depleted and fatty acids are mobilized, typically after 12 to 16 hours from when you stop eating. Most people enter mild ketosis, as documented with the finger stick, at about 16 hours of fasting. However, the metabolic switch can take longer after you stop your food consumption, depending on liver glycogen at the start of the fast and also your level of activity and exercise during the fast. So time-restricted eating sparks this evolutionarily conserved signal that shifts metabolism from lipid cholesterol synthesis and fat storage on the one hand to mobilization of fat through fatty acid oxidation and fatty acid-derived ketones, which serve to preserve muscle mass, function, and performance, as well as neuronal function and performance. In fact, a growing body of evidence suggests that ketones are the preferred fuel for both the brain and the body during periods of fasting and maybe for extended exercise. Therefore, fasting regimens that induce the metabolic switch may improve body composition in people who are overweight or obese and also optimize physiological and cognitive function as well as reduce aging. That brings us to the goal of metabolic flexibility, which is defined as the ability to respond to conditional changes in metabolic demand. It explains why insulin resistance and obesity make you metabolically inflexible. Advances in the omics revolution have provided translational research on how to improve metabolic flexibility with the intention of preventing, treating, and reversing metabolic disease. Overall, the goal is to give our patients more versatility in how they respond and adapt to environmental changes, especially nutrients, as well as lack of nutrients, and exercise. So metabolic flexibility allows you to flip the metabolic switch as you transition from a fasted to a fed state and back again. We want our patients to utilize on demand the right fuels at the right time. That is, match the fuel availability with the metabolic machinery. So when you fast, the body burns more fat. When you eat more carbs, the body burns more carbs for fuel. One of the major ways that the body achieves this flexibility is through normal and healthy insulin levels and signaling. 
So what tool improves your metabolic flexibility? Your fork, your clock, maybe your running shoes, maybe even lifting boulders. So why is fasting beneficial? Periodic fasting triggers two important molecular mechanisms, autophagy and hormesis. These were elicited in our ancestors when food was scarce. And we even foraged and hunted in a fasted state, which is why exercise while fasting is so beneficial. Our DNA did not evolve with breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks in between. Every animal in the wild performs intermittent fasting. Lions eat once per week on average, and they can go up to two weeks without losing any muscle mass. Wolves in the Rocky Mountains eat once every one to two weeks. These animals have metabolic flexibility, something that as humans, we're losing. The problem is that we live in an environment of too much food availability, and we eat it over too long of a period each day, leading to too much growth and not enough repair. Furthermore, our adaptive homeostasis declines with aging. That's not the only problem with aging. According to an excellent review by Roman researcher Anna Picca, there are nine cellular markers of aging, including telomere erosion, epigenetic alterations, stem cell depletion, cellular senescence, mitochondrial dysfunction, genomic instability, proteostasis imbalance, impaired nutrient sensing, and abnormal intercellular communication. That means a successful approach to healthy aging must counteract these cellular markers of aging. Caloric restriction of 20 to 40% of calories every day does this. So caloric restriction is defined as reducing your caloric intake without malnutrition. And it's been found to produce weight reduction and longer health span very consistently across every single species that's been studied. Studies in overweight humans show that short-term caloric restriction of six months improves several cardiovascular risk factors, mitochondrial function, and insulin sensitivity. Taken further, we know that fasting modulates multiple energy sensing systems in the cell, including IGF-1, TOR, NERF-2, and others. But ultimately, we can simplify the effect of fasting into two main mechanisms that trigger benefits to the organism. I mentioned them earlier, autophagy and hormesis. Autophagy is when cells consume damaged cellular structures as fuel. So it's a metabolic process that also clears out the cellular junk. What's the junk? Things like damaged proteins, broken DNA, dead organelles, oxidized particles. The junky cells are replaced with newly regenerated cells from activated stem cells. Hormesis is a form of mild to moderate stress that evokes adaptation, and it actually protects against future stress and increases an organism's survival. Protein content in the diet triggers IGF, so low protein lowers IGF. Carbohydrate content triggers insulin and blood glucose, and that tends to rise with aging, starting by age 50. And of course, low-carb food lowers insulin. In other words, protein and carbohydrates are the most important triggers for growth factors. 
Caloric restriction may modulate your immunity by mitigating some of the changes in your T-cell phenotype that occur with aging. And certainly, caloric restriction reduces markers of oxidative stress. Quick story about caloric restriction that I learned at a recent conference with Walter Longo at USC. One of his mentors, a professor at UCLA named Roy Walford, was an early pioneer of caloric restriction. Walford proved that laboratory mice who were fed a restricted diet of 50% calories doubled their lifespan. As an early biohacker, Dr. Walford, along with seven colleagues, sealed themselves inside a place called the Biosphere 2 from 1991 to 1993. They farmed all their own food and they shared it equally inside of this tightly sealed glass and steel structure. But they found that they were unable to grow as much food as they expected. And he actually convinced them to eat a meager calorie restricted diet. In case you haven't heard of Biosphere 2, it's an unprecedented and ongoing ecological experiment known officially as the American Earth System Science Research Facility in Oracle, Arizona. It's been in operation since 1984. It's now owned by the University of Arizona since 2011. Its mission is to be a center of research, teaching, and lifelong learning about Earth, its living systems, and its place in the universe. So during most of the time that this group of people was inside the biosphere, they consumed a low calorie, mostly plant-based diet of vegetables, fruits, nuts, grains, and legumes with very small amounts of dairy eggs and meats. Here's what they found. They lost weight, actually about 15 to 17% of their total mass, and they had a 6% drop in their basal metabolic rate. In fact, when they came out, they looked malnourished, which was an important finding. Roy Walford published multiple papers about the experience and documented their discoveries, including lower blood glucose, lower total leukocyte count, lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure. And he did this between 92 and 94. Unfortunately, Roy Walford then developed amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's or motor neuron disease. And he died at age 79 of respiratory failure as a complication. While one case is certainly anecdotal, many experts in the field of fasting, including Walter Longo, hypothesized that Walford's ALS was a result of caloric restriction. Walford himself suggested that his ALS was the result of chronic hypoxia and maybe carbon monoxide exposure inside the biosphere. So the takeaway from this tragedy is to be really careful with your biohacking projects as the mouse data may not translate into the human data. So the two other major problems with caloric restriction include, males seem to reap the benefits more than females and we don't completely understand why. And maybe even more important, only about 10% of patients can do it, especially long-term. So as a result of all these problems with caloric restriction, alternatives have been developed and tested in clinical trials, leading to the rise of intermittent energy restriction as opposed to continuous energy restriction. The research evidence suggests that it delivers many of the same benefits, 
Examples include time-restricted eating, where the food window is to eat within, say, eight hours with a 16-hour overnight fast, which is what I use the most in my practice, and I'm going to be describing more today. Other fasting protocols with good evidence include alternate day fasting, modified alternate day fasting, the 5-2 protocol, short-term fasting where you don't eat for less than 72 hours, and prolonged fasting, which is defined as no caloric food or drinks for more than 72 hours, and also the fasting mimicking diet. I'm not going to cover all of these protocols today because ADF short-term and long-term fasting are not part of my clinical toolbox at this time. However, the alternate day fasting may be the most efficacious in pre-diabetic patients, particularly women. And there's compelling evidence that the alternate day fasting protocol works better in postmenopausal women compared to premenopausal women, which is surprising. You don't hear that too often. What I'm going to review today are three of the most important intermittent fasting protocols so that you're armed with more information for how to counsel your patients. And perhaps I can even convince you to try each of them so that you know what you're talking about, which, in my opinion, we don't do enough of in our practice of medicine. So I'm going to talk about the 5-2 diet, the fasting mimicking diet, and time-restricted eating using a 16-8 protocol. So first, the 5-2 diet. And there's at least a thousand books about this now published. Most oncologists know about it because of the solid randomized trials that have been done, mostly out of the United Kingdom. I even met a traditional allopathic oncologist from Australia earlier this year who was obsessed with 5-2 and prescribed it to his patients, which made me do the happy dance. We are finally making progress with lifestyle medicine. So here's how it works. There's five days of normal eating. And then there's two days, ideally consecutive, of restricted calories of 500 to 600 kilocalories a day. 500 for women, 600 for men. The advantages are that the 5-2 diet is simple, it's effective, there's multiple clinical trials, including many with women and women with breast cancer. The disadvantages are that you have to count calories two days per week, and that limits acceptability and compliance. You also should avoid it in type 1 diabetics, pregnant women, people with eating disorders, and shift workers. It also gives you ketosis breath. Pretty much all of these fasting protocols do. It can cause difficulty with sleeping, constipation, and irritability. The clinical trials were run by Michelle Harvey, who is a research dietitian at the Breast Cancer Prevention Center in the United Kingdom. I'm going to mention two of them so that you have a sense of her results. In her first trial of 110 women over six months, Harvey and her collaborators compared two consecutive days of 650 kilocalories composed of milk, yogurt, fruit, and vegetables, and compared it to a control group of daily 25% energy-restricted Mediterranean diet. That was about 1,500 kilocalories a day 25% from protein, 45% from low glycemic load carbohydrate, 30% from fat. Over six months, the mean weight loss for two-day dieters was about six kilograms. Now you can double that to get the, the amount in pounds. And that was marginally but not statistically greater than the daily dieters who lost about five kilograms. However, 
the two-day dieters had beneficial effects on their metabolism during and after their restricted days. Their insulin resistance was 23% better. However, the two-day diet had beneficial effects on metabolism during and after restricted days. Insulin resistance was a mean 23% lower than in the daily dieters, with an additional 25% reduction during the two restricted days. However, the two-day diet was not easier to follow than a daily diet. The second trial tested 115 women and randomized them into one of three groups over three months of weight loss and one month of weight maintenance. Group one ate 650 kilocalories of low-carb, high-protein for two days and five days of ad-lib Mediterranean diet. Group two ate a two-day ad-lib low-carb diet, and group three ate a daily continuous energy-restricted Mediterranean diet. Both of the two-day diet groups were more successful than the daily caloric-restricted diet. Overall, the two-day diets performed equally well, with about 58 to 65 percent achieving more than 5 percent weight loss compared to 40 percent of the daily dieters, and that was statistically significant. The success of both low-carbohydrate two days was due to 75% adherence, and participants did not overeat, but they actually restricted their intake on the unrestricted days. That's important. During the weight maintenance phase, one day of low-carb dieting per week maintained reductions in weight, body fat, and insulin resistance. So the takeaway is that you could do 5-2 in your practice, and you could advise your patients to eat low carb two days per week and Mediterranean on the other five days. Now Michelle Harvey is exploring the role of the 5-2 diet in risk reduction of breast cancer in ongoing trials. Second, let's cover the fasting mimicking diet, which is the protocol studied most extensively by Walter Longo at USC. He developed this diet after his work with Roy Walford and his mentors heartbreaking death from the stress, perhaps, of caloric restriction within the biosphere. In other words, too much hormesis, too much stress. So Longo set out to create a diet that mimicked caloric restriction, but caused less stress. Overall, there's now more than 28 studies published on the fasting mimicking diet, including multiple randomized trials. There's data showing benefit in obesity, prediabetes, and multiple sclerosis, as well as increased sensitization to tumors and chemotherapy. In the latest clinical trial conducted at the Longevity Institute at USC and the Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute, three cycles of the fasting mimicking diet for five days per month over a three-month period. So what is the fasting mimicking diet? It's really interesting. It's a five-day period of mimicking caloric restriction, and here's how it works. On day one, you have 1,150 calories. Day two, you have 800 calories. Day three, 800 calories. Day four, 800 calories. Day five, 800 calories. Day six, you start to go back to your normal way of eating. So it's a five-day period of mimicking caloric restriction, and you do that once a quarter. Now, for weight loss, it's recommended that you do this five-day period once a month for three cycles in a row. In the latest 
clinical trial conducted at USC by Longo. Three cycles of the fasting mimicking diet, five days per month over a three-month period, showed significant effects when they were measured one week after the last cycle. Here's what they found. They had a total of 100 patients, 63% female, and 71 of them completed the full three cycles. That's important. They showed decreased weight. In fact, there was a loss of eight pounds in obese subjects. This represented fat loss, including visceral fat. The subjects had increased muscle mass. So remember the metabolic switch? That's something that's happening with the fasting mimicking diet. Glucose dropped on average by 12 milligrams per deciliter in pre-diabetics and returned to the normal range. Blood pressure also dropped as well as high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Now you may wonder about the macronutrients in the fasting mimicking diet. Overall, it's low protein. And here's the rationale. As I've mentioned, fasting effects on reduced IGF-1 are mostly due to protein restriction. So in humans, chronic caloric restriction does not lead to a decrease in IGF-1 unless it's combined with protein restriction. In a separate study, individuals that were followed for 18 years that were middle-aged from about 50 to 65 years of age, when they were eating high protein, that was associated with a 75% increased rate of mortality and a fourfold increased risk of cancer and diabetes mortality. Overall, reduced activation of the insulin IGF-1 signaling pathway is the most robust intervention known to increase maximal lifespan and health span in rodents. As you probably know, IGF-1 plays an important role in metabolism, growth, and development. Growth hormone deficient and growth hormone receptor deficient mice have low circulating IGF-1 levels and increased health span. Lastly, IGF-1 promotes tumor development by stimulating cell proliferation and differentiation and inhibiting cell apoptosis of normal and cancer cells. Here's my personal experience with the fasting mimicking diet, and then I'll share my professional experience. You gotta keep in mind that this is anecdotal information. It's totally subject to bias, and it's the lowest quality evidence. So I've completed two cycles, one month apart, and I found that the calorie restriction, which is about a 34 to 54% reduction, to be quite difficult. And you have to follow the protocol exactly to get the benefits. So in my end of one trial, I followed the five-day protocol to the letter. Here's my results. I dropped my fasting blood sugar from 94 to 74 milligrams per deciliter, so 20 points, which is good. Overall, my weight and my lean body mass were unchanged from day one to day six, but I'm at a relatively normal weight with a body mass index of 22. I had a morning ketone level of 0.9 millimoles by day two. So the metabolic switch occurred rapidly for me, faster than what I find on a basic time-restricted feeding protocol of 16-8, or even a ketogenic diet. In fact, by day four, I could feel accelerated autophagy because I was literally freezing <laughs> continuously inside my house, despite the Indian summer in the Bay Area 
in an outside temperature of 85 degrees Fahrenheit. So I ran my N of 1 trial, mostly out of curiosity and because I'm a biohacker, and not because of a particular illness that I was trying to reverse, although my issues with insulin resistance are always lurking in the background of my matrix. Anecdotally, in my practice, about half of my patients are successful with the fasting mimicking diet using Prolon for weight loss, and among my cancer patients, a higher rate are successful, probably because they're more motivated by their diagnosis, which seems to carry more urgency than being overweight or obese. Finally, let's cover time-restricted eating. Once again, I'll review the best evidence that we have and then share my anecdotal experience and clinical pearls. In the scientific literature, this fasting protocol is called time-restricted feeding, or less commonly, time-restricted eating, which is what I prefer. And my patients think of it as intermittent fasting. Sometimes I call it more simply, eat dinner early. Here's how it works. You eat within an eight-hour eating window. For healthy patients, an earlier window might be better. For instance, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Anecdotally, 90% of my patients prefer 12 to 8 p.m. Outside of this eating window, non-caloric drinks are allowed. Things like water, black coffee, tea. And I found that the 16-8 protocol with the timing of the eight-hour eating window adjusted to the individual, followed by a 16-hour overnight fast, is by far the most acceptable fasting protocol. In fact, I would say 95% of my patients are able to do it successfully. In fact, this protocol is the best way that I've found to promote fat loss, preserve muscle mass, stabilize blood sugar, and augment both cognitive reserve and metabolic flexibility. Now, there are many trials of time-restricted eating, but I'm just going to review two of them. The first is a supervised controlled feeding trial that tested intermittent fasting with eating early, and this was just published in 2018 in Cell Metabolism by Sutton et al. The reason for the earlier eating window is to be compliant with circadian rhythms in metabolism, meaning that peak insulin sensitivity in normal people seems to occur around 10 a.m. to noon. So in this trial, they looked at early time-restricted feeding in a small group of eight men with prediabetes. They were instructed to eat breakfast at their usual time, which ranged from 6.30 to 8.30 a.m., and to finish eating within six hours. So they stopped eating by 3 p.m. So put another way, they followed an 18-6 protocol. The mean age was 56. The fasting glucose at the beginning was 102 and they were randomized to either the six-hour eating window or a control schedule, which was a 12-hour eating window. They did that for five weeks, and then they crossed over to the other schedule. They found that the early time-restricted feeding improved insulin sensitivity, beta cell responsiveness, lowered blood pressure, reduced oxidative stress, and also lowered appetite. And this study demonstrated for the first time in humans improves several aspects of cardiometabolic health 
and that intermittent fasting's effects are not just due to weight loss. But what they found on the exit interview was that even though people weren't hungry at night, six hours was just too tough. So the second trial I want to discuss was performed in the lab of Ruth Patterson at the University of California at San Diego in patients with early breast cancer. And her results were astounding and so encouraging. She did a large prospective study of 2,413 women with early stage breast cancer, and they were followed over seven years. She looked at the women who had an 11-hour eating window. So that means a 13-hour overnight fast. And they were really strict. If you drank black coffee in the morning, that ended your fast. What they found was that the women who followed this eating protocol decreased the risk of breast cancer recurrence by 36%. And each two-hour increase in their nightly fasting duration was associated with lower hemoglobin A1C and better sleep. Now, on a practical level, I want to start to wrap up with a few clinical pearls that I found to be helpful in implementing time-restricted eating in a clinical practice. So first, the window. I encourage my patients to choose an eating window when their body is most sensitive to insulin. And that's usually within the first few hours of awakening or at least in the morning. So remember, our DNA evolved to eat a few hours after the sun comes up and to stop a few hours before the sun goes down. According to Sachin Panda at the Salk Institute, a few hours before sundown, melatonin begins to rise and it travels to the pancreas to downregulate insulin production. So the 12 to 8 p.m. window that is preferred by most people for ease of social activity may or may not be the best window for creating metabolic flexibility. So we don't yet know if you can shift your insulin sensitivity in normal individuals. Researchers are looking into this question now and they're comparing early time-restricted feeding to late time-restricted feeding. In the clinical trials, even though people aren't told to restrict calories on time-restricted eating, they do. So in a trial of 12 weeks duration, people stuck to time-restricted feeding about six out of seven days of the week, which is actually quite good. And the average food consumption at the beginning of this randomized trial was 1,676 kilocalories per day. That was the baseline. When they started to do their intermittent fasting, they were consuming 1,335 kilocalories a day, and that was without calorie counting. Overall, this was about 16% protein, 47% carbs, 37% fat. So most of the trials show that weight loss occurs by about five to 10 pounds at three months, and then there's a plateau after that. But this is by far the easiest of all the protocols to follow. There's also a slight drop in blood pressure. So in conclusion, the best lifestyle medicine that I found in my 25 years of practice might be the medicine of not eating. Out of all of the fasting protocols available from the literature, we reviewed today caloric restriction, which very few people can sustain, the 5-2 diet, the fasting mimicking diet, and the time-restricted eating following a 16-8 protocol. In the practice of personalized lifestyle medicine, I believe that restricting intake of food to specific eating windows is our future so that we can recreate metabolic flexibility. Thank you.
thank you for being with us for this episode of The Practice. You'll find extensive show notes, including links and supportive materials over at thepracticepodcast.tv. While you're there, explore other topics and use the Ask and Answer button to ask your burning questions and give your insights about the topic. After all, the future of medicine lies in dialogue, not dogma. Let's transform medicine together by connecting on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find all the links at thepracticepodcast.tv. This podcast, including any related materials such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. This podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship and should not be considered a substitute for the independent professional judgment of any physician or healthcare professional regarding the appropriate course of action for a particular patient or individual. Metagenics does not make any guarantees regarding the accuracy, completeness, or usefulness of this podcast for any particular purpose. Listeners may use this podcast at their own risk and patients should not disregard or delay seeking advice from their healthcare providers based on the content of this podcast. Participation through the Ask and Answer button is optional and no participant should feel obligated to provide personal details, including about any diagnosis, symptoms, or other health-related information. Neither Metagenics Institute nor any of its affiliates seek this information and it is not necessary to participate in the dialogue regarding this podcast. The podcast presenters' views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of its research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Listening to this podcast does not obligate you to purchase, use, recommend, or prescribe any Metagenics or Metagenics Institute products or services, including their educational materials. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Unless approved by Metagenics Institute, this podcast must be used only for personal, non-commercial purposes. This podcast has no independent economic value and is intended to comply with all applicable laws. It may be rescinded, revoked, or amended at any time without notice. Listeners who are patients should talk to their healthcare providers if they have any questions regarding the content discussed in this podcast. Listeners who are healthcare professionals may obtain more information by visiting metagenicsinstitute.com, calling 888 690-8500 690-8500 or emailing med ed at metagenicsinstitute.com.